You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. All right, thanks, Lance. Good morning, y'all. See, it never does that to Bevan. That's just, it's rigged. All right, well, good morning. Uh, Like Lance said, my name is Adam Hoover. And something I've really come to appreciate about my childhood that I didn't at the time, of course, was the music. It turns out my parents had great taste in music. Okay, my dad loved James Brown and Steely Dan, and my mom loved Credence and Tina Turner and Cat Stevens. You know, so growing up listening to music like that, you can imagine I also heard a lot of Simon and Garfunkel. Okay, and their song, I Am a Rock, you know, from their Sounds of Silence album, uh, really stands out in my memory. And if you haven't heard this, it's a great song. Pull it up on Spotify when you get in the car. But the entire song is basically about the joys of living life alone and being left alone. In fact, just listen to the last four lines of the song. I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. Hey, it's a beautiful song, but that hasn't really proven to be true, has it? I mean, like Bevan talked about a couple weeks ago, we're in this pandemic of loneliness. So we've become a culture of rocks and islands, but instead of bringing us peace and joy from from isolation, uh, we're seeing it erode our mental and physical health to the point that it's considered a public health crisis. So in this series, uh, we're asking how our hard attitudes give us a toolkit for building more fruitful, life-sustaining friendships. And if you're new or new-ish to Seabreeze, the hard attitudes are seven action statements that are distilled from Scripture that tell us how we can relate to each other and how we can serve in the church. And since they're drawn from God's Word, the first four in particular can be really helpful reference points in asking how we can develop more fruitful, life-sustaining friendships. And today we're focusing on the hard attitude of giving and receiving scriptural correction. All right, well, let's define our terms to start. What this means is that if we're going to uh, correct someone, you know, we're going to offer some input or criticism, or if we're going to respond to someone else's input or criticism, that correction has to be drawn from God's Word. It has to draw its power from God's Word. God's Word is supposed to act like a filter. So as we're out there just being bombarded by an infinite number of ideas about how we're supposed to live our life, God's Word acts like a filter you know, to filter out the good and God-honoring truth from all the muck that's out there. Okay, great. But what does correction have to do with friendship? I mean, I can't think of a worse way to make friends and go around correcting people. Um, But listen to how the Old Testament book of Proverbs talks about friendship. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. So if our relationships are built on humility, like Bevan talked about two weeks ago, or like Lance talked about last week, that creates a a climate. You know, it creates a culture of of trust and and transparency. And it's in that kind of a culture that people learn to graciously give and accept any kind of correction that helps them know God and follow God. So the connection between friendship and correction is this, scriptural correction is one of our deepest needs. It probably doesn't feel like it, but it's actually one of our deepest needs because we all have things we want to change. Like we all have areas we'd like to grow. So we need people, we need friends 
to speak the truth of God's word and model the truth of God's word. Because when you begin to really know people and you allow people to really know you, uh, what happens is God can start to reveal your blind spots and your insecurities and your pride and all the things that are holding you back from growing in the ways that you want to grow. So you'll see people trusting God in ways that you're not and obeying God in ways that you're not. And you'll see the good things that God brings into their lives through their trust and obedience. And when that happens, you know, trusting God seems possible and worthwhile and obeying God seems possible and worthwhile in a way that it didn't when you were just trying to do life as an island. So this morning, we're gonna answer three questions. Why do we need correction? Where do we find correction? And then what is the ultimate correction that God wants us to receive? That's our roadmap. First, why do we need scriptural correction? To thrive in a dark world, to thrive in a dark world. And to to explore this, we're going to look at the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a, a church he had planted in the ancient city of Thessalonica. And this is roughly 18 years after Christ had died and, and been resurrected. And their culture was extremely hostile to uh, their new Christian faith. I mean, their lives were in danger because of their faith. In fact, Paul had to escape Thessalonica under cover of night because an angry mob was trying to kill him for spreading this new faith. And yet we read about how these ancient Thessalonian Christians were thriving. They were growing in their faith. They were loving each other. They were enduring under intense persecution. And as Paul is wrapping up his letter, he makes the case for how they are able to thrive in such hostility. This is from chapter 5. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Okay, that was a lot, so we're going to walk through it. But Paul starts by reminding us that the day of the Lord is coming. Okay, this is, this is the day that Christ will return in power to judge the world. And sadly, that day is going to catch a lot of people woefully off guard, like a, like a thief in the night, Paul says. But for those of us who are following Christ, who have gone all in with Christ, that, that day shouldn't catch us off guard. Uh, why not? Because we're children of the light, children of the day. Okay, we're awake, right? We're at our posts, we're watching. Because Christ is real, and he's alive, and each one of us, everyone in this room, is going to see him with our own eyes someday. And this isn't theoretical. This isn't mythological. You will see Christ with your own eyes, either when you go see him or he comes back here. And our hope and confidence as Christians is that we're ready for that day and we have a hope for that day whenever it might come. But because we're living in a world of darkness, even the children of the light 
can be tempted to do what people do in darkness, sleep and get drunk. So we're tempted to sleep, not literally, but to detach, right? To abandon our posts and, and try to tune out the spiritual battle that surrounds us. And we're tempted to get drunk, spiritually and literally, uh, to numb and distract ourselves uh, and squander what little time we have left. So what Paul tells us is stay awake, stay sober, don't tune out, don't numb yourself, because that's not what Christ saved us for. That's not what he died for. He died for us. He bore the wrath of God against sin for us so that we might live with him. That's have life with him. I mean, just think about every good thing you associate with the word life, okay? And that is the offer with Christ eternally. So do you see the case Paul is making? What he's doing is he's building an argument. He's making an argument for the life that Christ offers and how it's in stark contrast to the life that the world offers. It's a life in the light of day instead of the drunkenness and death in the darkness, right? But, but Paul knows it's not easy to live in this tension, you know, to live awake in the dark world. This isn't a spiritual nirvana that we just ascend to and then we kind of blissfully hover over all the problems of life, uh, the darkness of the world, it weighs on us and it presses in on us. So even the children of the light can be tempted to just keep hitting the snooze button and keep going back to sleep. So what do we do? Well, this is where Paul makes his closing argument. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So thriving in this spiritual darkness requires one another, all right? This is the point that Paul has been build, building to. Therefore, this is, it all comes to a head. Therefore, if we want to thrive in darkness, if we want to stay awake and stay sober so that we're ready for that day that we see Christ with our own eyes, then we need the correction of one another. And now that verse, it may not sound like correction to our ears, encourage Sounds like pretty much the opposite of correct, doesn't it? When we hear encourage, we really think validate. You know, we think uh, affirm that I'm on the right path and that I'm doing what I should be doing and I don't need to change anything. But that is not the type of encouragement that Paul has in mind. You know, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and the word that's translated here as encourage is parakaleo. And that prefix para means with or alongside of, you know, just like it does in English. But the root word kaleo means call. So parakaleo literally means to call alongside of. That's the next blank you have there, to call alongside of. And the Greeks would use this word to refer to things like calling a doctor or summoning a witness into court to testify. So you're calling someone to fulfill a specific and important purpose. And Paul says, this is the kind of encouragement we need. Not being validated, but, but being called up for a purpose. And the next word there that's translated as build up is oika dimeo. You know, this is a compound word from oiko meaning build, and dimeo meaning roof or house, you know, where we get domestic or domicile. So when Paul says build up, he doesn't mean build in, you know, the abstract or the decorative sense. He uses this word picture that specifically communicates the construction of a, of a covering or a house or a home, something that's built for a purpose. There's your next blank, built for a purpose. It's built according to a certain standard, right? 
So you see, it really comes down to purpose, doesn't it? We're calling one another forward for a purpose. We're building up one another for a purpose. And don't miss that last little phrase there at the end of that verse, just as you are doing. Okay, they were already doing this. This is how the Thessalonians were thriving when other churches were struggling. It wasn't just that they had the truth about Jesus. Okay, they had the truth, and they applied that truth to call each other alongside and build each other up, to, to build lives that were more suitable for Christ and his purposes. This was their culture, and this is the culture we try to have here at Seabreeze, and that's why it's one of our hard attitudes. So this leads to our second question. Where do we find correction? We need it so bad, well, where is it? Well, we find correction in our church family. In our church family. Now, it's very countercultural to say this, but this, the church, is where God does his best work. In fact, God's view of the church is so high that he describes it with terms like the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And he wouldn't throw around terms like this if this were trivial, okay? This is where my need for scriptural correction is met because this is where I see God's word lived out and this is where I see his image reflected in hundreds of different lives so that as it pleases God, he helps me see where I need to grow and where I need to kind of recalibrate my life to conform to his word. And this happens in two basic ways in the church. The first is spoken. There's your next blank, spoken. This is the unpleasant one, all right? Someone actually pulls you aside, takes you out for coffee, and tells you to your face that something you're doing isn't biblical, right? You're being fearful, you're being passive, you're gossiping, you're, you're living a double life in some way. Well, that doesn't sound very Christian. I mean, Christianity is about acceptance and forgiveness and come just as you are, right? Yeah, absolutely. But if you have trouble with whether or not this is a Christian thing to do, consider the words of Christ himself in Revelation chapter 3. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So Christ himself, motivated by the same love, the same unfathomable love that led him to die for you on the cross, also rebukes you. And he brings hardship into your life to discipline you. It's the same love. I mean, we sing a lot of songs, you know, about Christ's love for us on the cross. We don't sing many songs about his love for us in our discipline. Uh, but as unpleasant as this kind of correction may be, we have to understand that it is still fundamental to how God loves his children. When I was in college, I was a part of a really great church, First Baptist Church of Lubbock, Texas, okay, where I was part of the college ministry. And just like we have here at Seabreeze, we had small groups. We called them challenge groups. And I was, uh, I'd been leading one of these challenge groups for a few years. And I also went on the spring bank mission trip every year. And on Sunday mornings, I was an usher and a greeter. And I was pretty much at everything. So one day, this was towards the end of my second year of law school. It was almost summer break. And the pastor, who was over the college ministry, called me which this shows how long ago that was, he actually called me, and asked me to come visit him at his office to talk about my role for the next year. And I knew this could only mean one thing. I was being promoted. 
I didn't know exactly what, but I knew I was moving on up. Um, the way I figured it, he'd either promote me to one of this group of leaders, like a handful of leaders that was over the entire small group ministry. They were called leaders of leaders. I mean, doesn't that just sound cool? Who would want to be a leader of leaders? Or I thought he might even be asking me to go on staff as a ministry intern, which as weird, if it's, weird as it sounds, that was like the highest position. That was, you were really spiritual if you were asked to be an intern. So I thought, yeah, that's a good fit. And I remember walking into the building, just beaming with pride, just picturing in my head, telling my friends that I was now a leader of leaders, or I was now an intern, right? Very, very spiritual. So I sit down at the pastor's desk, and this is what he says to me. We're thinking we won't ask you back to be a leader next year. Yeah. Okay, first of all, who's we? There's like a committee that decided this. It was only him in the room. I don't know who the we was. And he keeps going. He says, you have a problem with foolish speech. And we're seeing a lot of immaturity in your attitudes and in your relationships. So we don't think you should be elevated to leader. Okay. Again, with the we. I don't know who the we is. And he then gives me lots of examples Okay, I don't have that much time for the sermon to go through them all. And some I remember, and some I don't, but I remember there was a lot. And uh, it was like the light just got turned on in every dark corner of my life, and I had nowhere to scurry. But then he says, here's what I can do. Okay, I'm going to give you three verses, verses from the book of Proverbs about self-control and controlling your speech. And I want you to memorize those three verses. And over the summer break, I want you to email me once a week telling me how you applied those verses and how you're seeing God change you through those verses. And if you do that, then we can talk again in the fall about you coming back on as a leader. Now, this offer was humiliating uh, because this pastor was only like a year older than me, and now he's my probation officer. <laughs> so it was just mortifying. But in the moment, it was like God just had his hand on my shoulders, just locking me into my seat so I didn't storm out. And God graciously, in the moment, gave me the sense to realize that this was a lifeline. Because to God, it wasn't about whether I was a leader or I wasn't a leader. He was, again, our, our words, he was calling me alongside of himself. He was trying to build me up to be more mature, to be more useful for his purposes. So I did it. I memorized the verses. One of them was Proverbs 10:19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. <clears throat> so every Monday morning, I emailed him and told him about how God had you know, brought those verses to mind in certain situations. And here's just one example that stands out in my mind. I had a job that summer, and one day my boss did something that I thought was really unfair. He treated me differently than he was treating some of the other employees. And I was on the verge of telling him off, like letting him know how bogus that was. But the verse popped into my head, and I just said, just hold off. Think about it, pray about it. And then if something needs to be said, you, you can later. So I did, and then I end up, so I held my tongue at the moment, then I thought about it, and I decided, you know what, it's not really that big of a deal. So I just sort of lived with the unfairness for that summer. But that boss, who did one small, maybe unfair thing in the summer of 2004, okay, he and I are still friends. In fact, all kinds of good things have come into my life through our friendship. I even indirectly met my wife through this person. So if I had told him off 19 years ago, like, I don't know where I'd be. 
And that was one of the most embarrassing things that had ever happened to me. And it was also one of the most transformational. And I believe that this was actually Jesus himself working through this man, just putting his finger in my chest and saying, you're being foolish, you're being immature, now come alongside me. Let me change you. Let me plant seeds that are going to grow and bear fruit for decades. So if this happens to you, if you're rebuked, it is so important that you resist every natural urge to get defensive, to rebuke the person back, and then blow it off. Yes, it's awkward. Yes, it's embarrassing. But it's also a lifeline, okay? This is the saving and the correcting grace of Christ himself in your life. But as vital as that kind of correction is, giving and receiving scriptural correction isn't limited to this kind of a a spoken verbal rebuke. And this is the next blank in your handout. Correction is adopted, okay? Adopted. We also give and receive correction as we adopt into our own lives how we observe our brothers and sisters following Christ. God intends that you receive correction by observing the believers around you. And God intends that you give correction to us as we watch you trust and obey God in your own context. I mean, this is how the church was intended to function. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians, this time in chapter 1. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So do you see the dynamic here? You know, Paul wasn't part of some huge church planning launch team, okay? It's literally just him and one other guy, okay, Silas. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit goes to work doing what the Holy Spirit does, brings conviction. The Holy Spirit brings an awareness to people of their need for Christ. And it's as their eyes are opened to the reality of Christ and their need for Christ that the humble, faithful lives of Paul and Silas start to become irresistible, Okay, they, they see Paul and Silas praying and teaching and serving and suffering, and they imitate it. Like they adopt it for themselves. And then it spreads. Okay, it goes viral. Now, now the Thessalonians are the example, and people are imitating them. The Macedonians and the Achaeans are imitating the Thessalonians. So it just keeps spreading from there. So this is not only how people grow, this is how the church grows. And my life has been shaped by countless of these observed, adopted corrections from people in the church. So I have a friend who treats his wife more graciously than I tend to treat mine. And I have another friend who is more diligent in his work than I tend to be. And I have another friend who's more intentional with his kids than I am. And so I see glimmers of the image of God in these men. And I want it for my own life. So if it's scriptural, if it conforms to God's word and draws power from God's word, I, I, I let myself be corrected by it. Okay, so I, I try to adopt it for myself into my own life. And you we're talking about the importance of friendship in this series. This is the fruit of friendship. Okay, having people to cross-pollinate truth with. That, that's why we invest in friendship. Well, do we have any NASCAR fans here? Anybody? Uh, well, I'm, okay. I'm told F, uh, Formula One is a bigger deal out here than NASCAR, but I'm from Texas, 
or NASCAR is a big deal. So we're going to go with NASCAR. Uh, I think NASCAR is a great analogy for the Christian faith. Because the thing about NASCAR is you could have the best driver in the world, and he could be driving the most advanced, finely tuned car in the world. And that car, and that, that driver in that car is going to lose if he doesn't do what? Stop, right? He's got to take pit stops. Okay, it's part of the rules. The entire sport is built around the idea that every driver needs a team. And several times a race, he's got to get off the track, pull up with his team, and completely stop. And what happens at that stop? He gets restored, built back up, more fuel, fresh tires. They can make repairs. And for those of you not well-versed in NASCAR, uh, I brought a video for you so we can visualize this. Here come the Chevrolets to pit road. Much bigger brakes on this Gen 7 car. Later braking, down to pit road speed. Jamie. And a nice countdown for William Byron as he makes his way down with all of his teammates. What a night they had last night. The power. It was a big night for Hendrick Motorsports. The 24 is in his box. His team over the wall. They've been practicing this for over a year. Nice work so far. Regan, we'll go to you. Well, Chase Elliott with his race car right now, just a little bit tight, worried it might get tighter, so a small adjustment for that. And your leader, Kyle Larson, that race car good, other than when cars are pushing him. All right, so now you know what I'm talking about. Um, and I, I, I love that as a picture of the Christian faith. I mean, you heard the woman. They've been practicing this for a year. This isn't like, oh, here he is. What should we do? Uh, maybe tires? I don't know. Like, they practice it. That's why they're able to do it in like 16 seconds. So I love this picture because you need a team and you need to stop. You need this rhythm of restoration and repair and rebuilding. I mean, can you imagine a NASCAR driver just in the middle of a race deciding he's skilled enough to just skip the pit stops and finish the race by himself? Well, no, that's absurd. He'd run out of gas. His tires would blow out. It would never happen. Or can you imagine a NASCAR driver getting out of his car to pump his own gas and change his own tires? I mean, it's his car, right? He knows what's best. He can do it on his own. I know, also absurd. It would never happen. So this is why you need the church. Not because we're the moral people and we have all the answers and all the strategies for life, but because, and again, this is very countercultural, even among religious people, the church, for all of its flaws, is how the grace of Christ flows into the life of Christ followers. And what you need most is Christ. And if you've been led to believe that you can experience the transformative and the restorative power of the grace of Christ outside of the church, you've been lied to, all right? It, it really is like a NASCAR driver trying to pump his own gas. It doesn't work. It just flies against reality. Christ saved us as a body, and he works in us and changes us as a body, and that body, his body, is the church. So the goal of this heart attitude is not that we'd become a church full of whistleblowers, just side-eyeing each other, you know, waiting to pounce for rule violations. You know, that'd be obnoxious. The goal is culture, right? We'd have a culture of teachability and humility, that we'd be malleable to scriptural correction however we receive it spoken or adopted. But here's the problem. We're not naturally humble or teachable. You know, the default setting for a human is, I know what's best, uh, not only for me, but for you and for everybody else. 
and I don't need to learn from anyone. And if you try to rebuke me, you're going to get rebuked right back, so buckle up. So how do I invert that? Okay, how does an arrogant, self-righteous person like me become correctable? Well, it requires a seismic shift in my perspective. Okay, the, way I, the entire way I view the world needs to change. And it requires what I think is really the ultimate correction that God wants us to receive and adopt, which is, I need saving. Okay? I need saving. You need saving. This is the correction. This is the correction that every page of Scripture points to, that I need saving. And what the Bible tells me from Genesis to Revelation is that my need to be saved was so desperate, that sin was so hardwired into my heart, that my only hope for rescue required the Son of God, God in the flesh, to willingly give his life. And if I believe that, if I really internalize that, then I have to believe they also need his guidance and his correction every day through his word and through the church. I need his saving, correcting grace just as much today as I did the day I became a Christian. Carl Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist in the early to mid-20th century, and along with Sigmund Freud, he's considered one of the, the grandfathers of modern psychiatry. And Jung once said this, the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you truly are. And this still echoes in our culture, doesn't it? This idea that to be happy and to be fulfilled, I need to explore the best expression of myself as an individual. And I've read sociologists refer to this as therapeutic individualism. And it's one of the foundational narratives of our culture. In fact, I don't think most people ever really even question it. It's just kind of baked into how we see the world. But here's the question. Is it working? You know, as you reflect on your relationships or as you read the news, is it working? Like, are people just out there happily becoming the best versions of themselves? I, I don't think it's working. Now, there is an element of truth to what Jung is saying. Jesus would affirm that you are an individual. You are a unique creation made in God's image. And because of that, you have enormous inherent worth. But individualism doesn't work, and it was never going to work, because being an individual is not what you were created for. You won't find joy, you won't thrive, if you're just trying to become the best version of yourself. But you will find the best expression of yourself as an individual in a life that's shared with other Christ followers. That's what we're corrected for to be called alongside Christ, to be built up to be more like Christ, not so that your individual desires can be fulfilled, but so that your eternal purpose can be restored. And this is the message that everyone needs to hear this morning. It doesn't matter where, where you're at. If you're not a Christian, maybe you're thinking through what Christianity means or what it might mean for your life. I think this is the message you need the most, that you need saving. Christ is calling you alongside of him, calling you to life with him, inviting you to step out of the darkness and into the light. Or maybe you've, you're here and you've been a Christian for 40 or 50 years. Well, you need to hear the exact same message, that you need saving and that Christ is calling you alongside of him, calling you to life with him, inviting you to step out of the darkness and into the light. And that is the privilege of a lifetime, to embrace the correction that you need saving and accept God's offer of rescue 
whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time. Yeah, let's pray. God, thank you for this correction that points us to the thing that we need the most, which is you. Thank you that you sent your son, that you took on flesh to live the perfect life that we couldn't and, and die the death that we should have to, to, to rescue you. Thank you that we Thank you for this church and just all the opportunities to grow and see you that we experience through it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.